0: So we first heard about our guest today when we were all participating in the Edelweiss Book Fest as editor's picks, and we couldn't get her or her book out of our heads. While abolition has been a word largely associated with slavery, it's taken on a new meaning when it comes to the police in America. And yes, we know this word is scary and police reform can seem daunting.
1: Yeah, to say the least. But (laughs) Derricka Purnell not only understands that, but she has a framework for how we need to be thinking about this process and what new structures can be built in its place. Listen in to hear more about becoming abolitionists, the lack of history of white resistance, Derek's own personal thought journey, and so much more. We really enjoyed this conversation and we learned so much, and we hope you do too. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We are so excited to have you.
2: Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Of course, my name is Derek Purnell. I'm a lawyer, writer, and now author of Becoming Abolitionists: Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom.
1: And one of the things I really appreciated about the perspective you brought to your book was that you take us on this journey. You say that you started, probably like many of us and our listeners, a little skeptical about this call to abolition. Because, you know, when I hear it, and especially before I read your book, I felt like the word sounded a little intimidating, like a call to eliminate structure and and suddenly create this void. But I really, really, really appreciate how you explain that it's this process, that it's about building structures in place. So can you talk to us a little bit more about why police reform can't and won't work and why abolition is the only path forward?
2: Yeah, of course. Well, one, just thank you so much for having me. And I completely empathize with that. My big thing that I have gotten caught up on the last few years was climate change. I, I write about this in the book. I'm just like, okay, there's stuff going on. It feels bigger than me. This whole we got we can't go past four degrees. What does this mean? I guess I'll start using some recyclable straws, like to do my I just didn't know what to do. And so it was in that moment that I realized other people when they hear abolition, they probably have seen sets of fears and concerns because it feels sort of totalizing. And so yeah, when I was, I guess, in college, I would hear people talk about abolition, but it wasn't a movement, a broad Mass movement to call for the abolition of police. There are people who certainly have been calling for police and prison abolition literally for decades. I mean, as soon as the Quakers, which helped to introduce the penitentiary model in the United States as a place of penitence where people can go and re- reflect and think, once they realized it was being used to essentially incarcerate people who were considered undesirable in the West, you know, black people, immigrants, poor working class people. They've been fighting to stop it, fighting to abolish it. So there is a long abolition movement in this country. And prisons, you know, started out as a reform. They were a reform to just killing people in the streets after they steal an apple off of a cart. It was like, well, maybe we'll just put people in a the cage. So they can think about this instead of you know, swift immediate physical corporal punishment. And so with police, police emerged from slave patrols, and they emerged from people who were tasked with essentially stopping other people who were organizing against companies and industries and trying to get better wages for their labor. And so you have police who are tasked with breaking up strikes, going to repress People who are uprising against slavery, people who are trying to figure out how to leave their homes, especially white women who want to leave their homes. They don't want to be in relationship with their partners anymore. Policing immigrants, being at the border. So this is the origins of police. And there always has been a movement to reform. Even if you look at the history of slave patrols, there were judges who restricted how many lashes a patroller could use in obtaining, like in retrieving a black person who's run away. And so without understanding that history, we can take for granted that police are just normal fixtures of society and not really understand that, well, actually they're managing all of this inequality, right? They're managing sexism and misogyny. They're managing racism. They're managing all of this inequality that takes place in our homes, that takes place in our labor relationships as a result of climate change. And making them better managers doesn't eliminate the harm, right? It doesn't eliminate the inequality. And so what abolitionists are calling for is the elimination of that harm, elimination of that inequality, and the elimination of police and prisons as institutions that perpetuate it
0: (laughs) that makes sense to me now I'm like okay, okay I need to learn more no I love that right I love that like the historical I mean I love history like so and I just that connecting those the clear progression right when people say but we've always had police and but have we really and so I think that was so helpful what you just did for us And I want to come back to this idea of
1: managing the inequality a little bit later on. But before we get away from the prison and the police conversation, I love that you also included in your book the knee-jerk reaction that, to be honest, I had myself. Like, I get the idea of societal change, but what about the murderers? What about the rapists? Like, what do we do to keep ourselves safe from people who want to do harm?
2: Yes. So one of the reasons why I chose to write this book in the way that I chose to write this book. And I realized that there are different people who ask those questions for different reasons. Right. So one group of people may ask and it really doesn't matter what my answer is. I can literally have a specific answer for every single scenario of every potential murder. And they're so antagonistic to the idea of abolition and so wedded to the idea of policing that they really aren't interested in what I'm saying. And then the people who I actually have the more in-depth conversations with, who want to know, will I be safe, are actually Black and Brown women and working class communities in different parts of the country, but especially in St. Louis, which is where I'm from originally. And when they ask, what about the murderers? What about the rapists? They want to know if they're going to be safe because they are vulnerable to violence from their neighbors, from strangers, from their lovers, from their children and from police. And they have only experienced deep investment in one institution, which is policing. And now you're asking people who are class exploited, who have seen divestment in education, who are usually facing evictions and housing crisis, who are experiencing food insecurity and job loss, you're asking them to now give up the one thing that's constantly funded. And when you have lost so much, then taking away the last thing feels like you're taking away nothing, like something. And now we're going to have nothing. So then I asked them, well, Let's figure out why people kill people instead of just what about the murderers? Because murder is such a broad category. And then when you start looking into the sociological and psychological and historical research around why people actually kill people, why do 15,000 people die every year because of murder and negligent homicide in this country? There's just so much more nuance and it actually makes it more digestible. So if we know that, The main reason why women are killed, for example, is because of a partner or a potential partner or someone who wants to be a partner, wants to maintain control over their sexuality. Police can't stop that, right? Like, if you're jealous that someone is going to leave you, leave the relationship, and you will rather like, kill them than like be you know broken hearted but that's a problem that police just simply can't fix and unfortunately police contribute to that domestic violence rates in police is two to four times higher than the general public. And so then we have to ask if we choose to keep police around, do we not also care about the partners of cops who are suffering domestic violence, who can't report them to the police because the police police the police, right? And so it's like, well, how do we then undermine the reasons why people kill people? And that involves so much more than putting someone in a cage sometimes. And police nationwide have a clearance rate which means they arrest people 40 to 50% of the time who ultimately are charged with murder, not even convicted, which means half of the people in this country and as high as 70% in some neighborhoods who actually do kill people are never even arrested and charged. So then police will pin multiple murders or homicides on another person and you never actually get to the bottom of the violence. The last thing I'll say about this is that, well, I wanna say two more things. What abolitionists are trying to do is figure out how to undermine that harm. And if we get to a place where we go from 15,000 murders and homicides a year to 2,000 or to 1,000, and we actually invest in what keeps people safe, maybe we can figure out how to have better accountability for those sorts of people, instead of pending murders on people randomly or throwing people in a cage or risking the increase in police killings, right? Police killings are also increasing and has been for the last couple of years. And that's also homicide, right? So how do we eliminate all these forms of homicide? And not just sometimes put the wrong people in a box after someone is already dead.
0: A, that was so thoughtful and helpful, I think, because when I think about, I was just reading a headline before we record this about qualified immunity and why it's so hard to get rid of because police unions are so strong, right? And so if we have qualified immunity, then we continue to perpetuate this exact cycle that you just talked about. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that in particular.
2: Yes, of course. So qualified immunity is obviously a barrier to holding police accountable to particular actions because it protects them from being sued or prosecuted for a lot of different reasons. But Eliminating qualified immunity is just one part of the whole you know issue with policing, right? And so it's like, well, for we eliminate qualified immunity, what are policing, what are police still tasked to do in everyday society? That's completely constitutional, that's completely normal. So right now, for example, under COVID, we know that so many people are facing evictions. And if police you know, evict people in the nicest way possible, the friendliest way possible. They go into their homes and they help them pack up their boxes and pack their bags and carry them out into the street. I mean, qualified immunity has no play there, right? It it doesn't impact how that cop is going to ultimately evict someone. We can get a woman cop, we can get a black cop, The eviction is still happening, right? The crisis is still happening. So even the most ideal forms of what policing, how it should be implemented, are often reduced to these subjective ways that they interact with civilians. But even the best, most constitutional, like nicest forms of policing that we have to fight against are ultimately managing the inequality I talked about earlier.
0: Yes, to all of that. You know, it makes me think about so many other things. And I think what was so powerful for me in your book was when you were telling your story along with all of the killings of like, when you're talking about, you know, Eric Garner or Michael Brown or Freddie Gray, or, you know, Trayvon Martin, which was, you know, my, I was pregnant with my oldest son when Trayvon Martin was killed. And so I just, you know, and becoming a mother, right? Like when you talk about writing that, letter to your unborn son in the book and just saying like, these people have been killed. And like, this is the world that you're coming into, you know, that was such a personal thing that you shared. And I think that is such a universal fear of parents that it doesn't play out for parents of white kids in the same way. Right. And so when I think about you know, a motherhood and how, you know, so I have a sort of a two part question here. One has becoming, because and I'll back it up a little bit and say like, for me, like becoming a mother of two boys that the world sees as black really snapped a lot of what I thought about police and abolition into focus in a way that I hadn't felt before, even though I intellectually knew some of these parts. Right. But so I'm curious, was that similar for you or how that's affected your work? And then the second part is because of the sort of universality of like parents and fears, right. For your kids, like I, and because our show is called dear white women, you know, (laughs) I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how this affects, you know, not just black, Brown and indigenous people, but also really has to be something that white people care about and what it not when you know maybe that hook is neurodivergence or you know how all of our systems of inequality are linked into really needing abolition but would love to hear your thoughts on that too.
2: Yes, of course. So it's okay I'll start with the second question first. Yeah. Yeah, so every now and again I'll come across a random tweet or an argument of a conservative and they'll say, you know, police kill so many white people and there's no movement for that. There's no, like Black Lives Matter is racist. They only care when police, you know, kill black people. They don't care about all these white people who are killed by police. And I find that argument just so bad for lots of different reasons because if the people actually care, like the people who write those tweets and make those arguments that Black Lives Matter don't care about, you know, white victims of police violence, then wouldn't they just go march for victims of police violence who are white? Like wouldn't they like create protests? Wouldn't they like actually join in the fight to stop violence against white people? And they don't, they just use it to call Black Lives Matter racist. And I'm just like, oh wow, yeah my rebuttal to that argument is like, oh yeah, you should care that white people are getting killed by police too. And abolition is actually a response that would make lots of white people safe, especially poor white people. And so it was just so frustrating that some of the solutions that we're putting on the table will actually improve the lives of lots of like working class white people who are wedded to white supremacy unfortunately. But yet because the optics are like, oh, it's just Black Lives Matter, oh, this abolition Abolition thing you don't care about all victims like no it's precisely that we care about all victims that we think that abolition will lead to more safety right and so I, that's just something that's just really frustrating to me the other thing that usually happens is I'll, I'll be in conversation with a journalist and they will say you know as a mom as someone who's raising two black sons like what are your fears for them what do you tell them when they leave the house my kids are seven or four like are you afraid and I was just always wonder like well you're raising white children aren't you afraid that your children have the power to grow up and murder people Like, isn't that something to also like be very afraid of that your kid could go murder someone and then go home and order a pizza like Michael Dunn did after he killed Jordan Davis. It's like a deep fear, but the viewpoint is always on, you know, how are you going to tell your black child to survive police interactions? Like, well, how are you going to tell your kid to like examine the white supremacy and power that they are that's bestowed upon them even before birth, like in the womb? like through generational wealth. Like, what are you going to do to resist that and to, you know, to fight against that? Because that's what's going to take for lots of people to be safe. And so I would hope that anyone who cares about this work, they don't think that they have a stake in it just because Black kids or Brown kids or Indigenous kids are vulnerable to violence, but also because their kids are vulnerable to violence and their kids are vulnerable to being to perpetuate that violence too. And that also has to be, it has to be both.
1: But it's interesting because when I've had some conversations with white women, and I don't know if you've felt the same way, who are parents of young white boys, not necessarily young, maybe teenage and like in their twenties kind of boys, they're like, you know, the amount of white guilt that is laid on my son, like he's feeling not great. And moms, you know, we all worry about our children's mental health, but they see this as this burden that so many white boys are carrying right now that they don't know how to navigate the world. And I'm just curious, I haven't been able to come up with a good conversation or response to that sort of observation that they have about their kids. Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yes, I honestly feel so sorry for lots of white kids and lots of white families because one thing that I grew up with constantly was understanding that I was a part of a tradition, right? And then there were lots of Black people in all of these various traditions that took on different ways of figuring out how to change the world. So there were people who were in civil rights movements, there were people who were in Black power movements, there are Black conservatives who tried to like slow down those movements for various reasons, and I understood historically like oh this is the kind of like black tradition that I want to be I want to be in a radical black tradition that figures out how to undo capitalism racism misogyny in this world I want to be a part of the set of heroes you know who I see is like really changing and shaking up the foundation of this world and what's so unfortunate is that I don't, there's no like white radical tradition, right? Like, I don't know how many white people, and white kids realize that there are lots of different kinds of white people who are fighting, like in the United States for various reasons. You typically hear, oh, there's like the Confederacy, and there were people who were fighting to save the Union. But there are also white people who were fighting to destroy the union because it perpetuated slavery, right? I don't know how many white kids know about John Brown, for example, or so many like labor organizers who worked with people like A. Philip Randolph. I don't know if they know like that history. Sometimes I remember being taught about like white abolitionists when I was in college, but I mean, when I was in high school, rather, but there doesn't seem to be a robust commitment to teaching you know, white students, about all of the white SNCC students, you know, who went down to Alabama, they just didn't experience guilt from being white. They decided to be a part of a resistance movement, right, to work alongside people of color to end and fight against white supremacy. And so when all of your heroes are fed to you, from, you know, K-12 colleges, like, this is the union and this is the confederacy. They think that those are their options. Like, I'm not going to be a racist or I'm going to be like a guilty white liberal. And it's like, no, there's so many other traditions in white communities and white history that's just intentionally obscured because if they knew that white kids were taught that history, it would maybe put them on a different path. And there's all this fight about critical race theory. It's like, well, y'all should be afraid for what they're hiding from you, too.
1: It reminds me a little bit of a conversation Misasha and I often have as biracial Japanese people where you're often asked, oh no, but where are you really from? And then you think about the white people who might be only one generation removed from immigration themselves, and they're not asked where they're really from. It's like there's this disconnect for white history with their own family lineage and the fact that there is still a robust identity and culture and legacy that is part of their own like bloodline, really, that is worth exploring
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: that's a really good point i'm gonna have to look up john brown and that sort of stuff because i don't know that story
2: oh you have to! john brown is one of my favorite people in history like one of my favorite people you have to look up John. i mean so many other people i can think about i'm like not coming off like the top of my head with a lot of people but yeah john brown like you know was trying to be an insurrectionist in slavery there's just a grand tradition again that's just obscured intentionally because if you learn about the like nice fluffy patriots and you learn about the races and not learn about people who are fighting other traditions, then yeah, it's gonna be easy to keep you on the white guilt path.
1: Yeah, and there's so much of it. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was an immigrant from the Philippines and you know came over undocumented and as a like she she self described it as like. We had nothing to lose. So we had this fight and the scrap and to like Mm -hmm. build and and learn. Mm -hmm. And her observation was so many white people. Again, this is a really broad brush statement, but like have more to lose. So they're living in this fear about what they stand to lose from the closure of inequality as opposed to standing for what is better for us all.
2: Well, I hope that people who are listening just choose to stand on the side of inequality. Right. Right, And also examine what they have too, because actually a huge frustration that I have with people of color who are fighting for equality is that sometimes they use what white people has as the measuring stick of what equality is. And so, for example, if you look at student loan interest rates and it's like, oh, it's lower for white people than it is for black people. And then you spend spend all your time fighting to get like the same interest rates instead of questioning like, Why do we have loans? Why do we have to pay to go to school? Because maybe what white people have isn't good, right? And so it's like, how do we also constantly examine whether what other groups of people have? It's like fine, but in this country, you just assume that if white people have it, it must be great. And it's like, no, white people actually get the short end of the stick when you actually think about the grand scheme of things. And you should be fighting for a different stick altogether.
1: I love that. And so much of what we just talked about here was this idea of, you know, combating inequality. And I feel like a lot of abolitionist thinking is tied into more socialism. I don't I mean, that's like a dirty word in the United States nowadays, but it's like this idea of equal or connected society that supports our fundamental needs. And do you think America is ready for that?
2: Do I think America is ready for that? Well, I think it depends on which conception of America you know you belong to, and so I just how I describe the different traditions that we belong to. I think that there's like traditions of you know patriots. I would think of like Grace Lee Boggs, who is severely critical of America, but see herself or at least saw herself when she was alive as. Call into question the maintenance of capitalism in the United States and we we'll say we shall fight for something as much more redistributive and rooted in our collective like relationships and care of each other. So I would say you have someone like her who would say, well, it doesn't matter whether America is ready or not, like we have to make it ready. All right, so there's like that people. There's some people who are not committed to this idea of what it means to be America because America was founded on so much oppression, slavery, genocide, and equality. It's like, well, is that something that's worth maintaining or should we try to fight for what a new society should look like altogether? Mm-hmm. I think socialism is a dirty word for a lot of reasons. The main reason is a dirty word is because the people who have the power to explain what socialism is are the people who are against it like point blank period the people who run the mega media conglomerates they're not interested in socialism so the messages about socialism that gets out into the world i was thinking about my aunt lana when i was home for christmas a few years ago i was trying to explain to her like the different platforms and she's for the presidential candidates and she was like bernie sanders is a socialist i was like aunt lana what do you think a socialist is And she starts like explaining. I was like, oh, no, 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 not even close, like not even close. And so once I start explaining to her like what lots of people mean when they say socialism, she said, why would anybody be against that? Like who would be against like fighting against exploitation that the people who, you know, decide to like work, receive dignity and pay. And like, you know, why would people be against that? And I was like, well, where do you think you learned what socialism is from? So yeah, it is a dirty word. And I think we have to fight to not make it a dirty word.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Cause when I was this week with all the Facebook whistleblower stuff coming out. And I was talking to Sarah about how there was this one podcast, which was talking about how Mark Zuckerberg ends his meetings by chanting company over country. And so I think when we get to I
2: missed that complete,
0: oh. right. I was like, my head exploded and I was like, Oh, this explains so much, right. About how profit driven All those social media platforms are out there, right? So obviously the ones that Facebook owns and controls, but how we are so deeply rooted in this profit-driven society when combined with all that oppression that you talked about that the country was founded on and our own like sort of individualistic cowboy mentality like, you know, manifest destiny, which worked out for, you know, white people really. And then some white people at that.
2: Exactly. Very few white people.
0: Yes. Right. And so you're just combining all of those histories together. And then I look at what like my kids are being taught in elementary school and I'm like, we're still teaching that. And so maybe that is to your point about Grace Lee Boggs. Right. And really thinking like, maybe it's not a question of whether we're ready. It's, can we survive if you know, any other way at this point. No, that's beautifully stated.
1: I mean, you mentioned just now about socialism and the definition you gave to your aunt. Can you explain to our listeners your understanding of socialism and how we should all be really pushing back against the media message
2: about what socialism is? Yeah, of course. So I try to write about this a little bit in the book. And so there's like different stages of economic systems. There was like feudalism and then capitalism replaced feudalism. And socialism is seen as a next stage of an economic system where people are essentially progressing and thriving towards a system that limits itself on exploitation. So even capitalism, I don't think that we usually have a good working definition. of. We defend it, but we aren't able to define it. And so in the book, I give a definition. It's a little bit of a shame that I don't have this like already right here. That's not even my book.
1: I'm like, I got it on my Kindle, but...
2: (laughs) I just had the copy up and I want to give the definition of watermark. I want to give the definition of capitalism that I put into the book because I realized like, oh yeah, not only we're like anti-socialism for a lot of different reasons, but then we don't think about like what capitalism is. So here I said, I think about capitalism as a political and economic system that categorizes group of people for the purposes of exploiting, excluding, and extracting their labor towards the profit of another group. And some of those groups and categories consist of race, gender, disability, immigration status, and much more. The slave trade is an example. By creating a category of enslaved Black people, White people could exploit their labor by benefiting from what slaves produced that they could not benefit from themselves. And additionally, by confining Black people to slave status, white people did not have to compete with it for other jobs in the market because Black people were excluded from the market. And so ironically, slavery became a tense debate among capitalists because slaves performed work that white people could have been paid to perform but instead poor white people were paid to manage and enslave black Black people as overseers, as slave patrols, police, wardens, sheriffs, prison guards. And so you have this economy where where people are allowed to derive profit at the top, from the people who are at the bottom, and it creates all these different categories. So, every year when we hear about equal payday, we say, you know, it took this many days for this amount, for this category of women to reach what a, a white man makes. Well, that's true because most of the people at the top who are able to exploit the people at the bottom are white men. So, that's why we even get that number. It's not some like neutral numbers, not as if women aren't working hard enough, right? It's that women are. A part of this exploited class, so it's easier to exploit their labor, right? And so if socialism asks well, what if we didn't have all of those people at the top with the power? Not sorry, very few people at the top with the power to exploit labor of workers, take money from them. I'm gonna take 97 cents of whatever you produce, right? And keep it for profit. And I'll give you three pennies and those pennies may add up. So if you work at, you know, Walmart, you're gonna get paid, I don't know, $9 an hour, I guess, $8 an hour in Missouri, while the Walton families reaped billions of dollars every year in revenue. But the Walton family is just a family. They can't do all of the work that the workers are doing. They can't sweep the floors. They can't check out everybody. They can't. So the labor is exploited because this family gets to benefit from all, like one of the largest employees of black people, one of the largest employers of poor people in this country. So they get to get all of that money. Well, if we actually pay Walmart workers what they would work, maybe their salaries would be $125,000 a year. Now that number seems like, Wow. Like if someone told me 10 years ago, we should pay Walmart workers $125,000 a year, I would be like, what are you smoking? What are you talking about? Like, this is ridiculous. But actually we would have way less poverty in this country if we pay people the actual value of their work, right? We could have, if all the Amazon factory workers were actually paid the amount of labor they produce instead of making Jeff Bezos a trillionaire, then we would have way less people. We could literally eliminate poverty for an entire sector of people. So socialism asks, how do we move from a system of capitalism with deep exploitation to a system where there's a more shared means of production and a shared means of like deriving profit? And we can split that to eliminate you know, the exploitation and poverty here and in other places.
1: I love that. Because I feel like personally, like I'm married to a Canadian man and I feel like I get that system a lot more sort of inherently because we have conversations in our home about how different America is compared to Canada. And I can't remember where it was, but it was in something I read recently, but it was like, what triggered the great depression? But it was some like really tiny number of rich people held more wealth or the same amount of wealth as like 40% of the rest of the population. And that's one theory about why the great depression may have happened. And so like this idea of the capitalistic exploitation is that it's not sustainable. Like there's going to come a point where this will come crumbling down. And so why aren't we thinking more about this idea of a society built on connection, community, basic services, like healthcare and childcare, you know, that fundamental safety net. So what are some of the steps you think we need to get us there? Like if listeners are like, hmm, this is starting to make some sense. What are things that people who want to learn more about abolition and this idea of socialism You know, can do to be of service?
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that figure out who else is interested in these sets of conversations and read with them, right? Join an organization or find a community of people who are just like, I don't know about, I remember socialism. I was like, okay, that's a little bit scary. It's never worked anywhere, but the more I learned about, oh yeah, we just don't need to do it like that. It's actually quite simple, right? And we share that, you know, our kids when they're in kindergarten, they learn how to share is the first thing. Imagine one kid could keep like 29 pairs of scissors And like 30 other kids had to share one pair. No one would tolerate that system, but we tolerate that and then tell people it's your fault that you can't afford a house or it's your fault that you have to borrow money to go to school. It just doesn't make sense. So I think the very first thing that people should do and can do is find their people, you know, find who's in your community, who's in your city, who's in your state, who's in your region, who's also interested in learning more and practicing, who are fighting for campaigns that can make sure we have universal health care, universal. Childcare. Because I find those spaces, those organizations, to be more of a safe space to ask questions. That if you just ask someone on Twitter, tell me why socialism works or you know you're watching people going back and forth on social media that's not a safe space to like do that kind of education you should be around people who know like oh yeah you're learning let's take our time it may take a few months it may take a few years but that pursuit of you know knowledge i think is going to make us stronger people and better people rather than demanding an answer in 180 characters i hate social media for that reason like no you can't build a movement trying to explain these concepts in like in 180 Character, you just can't do it. So that's the first step. I will also say, you know, when this debate comes up, and this is sort of related, like learn before having an opinion right, to be more curious than to be critical and not to just regurgitate other people's arguments or talking points without taking the time to think about them critically yourself and taking the time to learn, especially with other people. It doesn't mean you're gonna find all the right answers. There's so many answers about different economic systems and even abolition that I'm asking and I hope to always be asking those questions, right? It's so unfortunate that right now, like the ability to grow and change your mind is considered like taboo. And it's like, what kind of life is that? Like, shouldn't ideas that you have now be different than you had when you were like in your 30s or your 40s or your 20s? Like, hopefully you're always changing. And so I would hope that people, you know, feel free to examine their closely held beliefs. I had to do that with my faith. You know, I consider myself a Christian, but... The reasons why I'm a Christian today is very, very, very different from the reasons why I was calling myself a Christian in my late teens and early 20s. And so to be on that process is why the book is called Becoming Abolitionists. because hopefully we're going to continue to be on that journey until we build the world that we ultimately want, either for ourselves or for people in the future. Oh,
0: that's so good. Well, and I love the questioning, right, the emphasis on questioning and continually questioning First of all, spoken like a lawyer, but second of all, like, um, I think it's so great. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm here for it because I think that is, we are so willing to sort of take what is fed to us or, you know, repeat back. And, but part of what we really want our kids to learn, right. is critical thinking and the ability to question. And so continuing to question and ask, you know, those follow-up questions and push for the answer even when it's sort of being, you know, told to you is that it. Is that it? Is that all? Is so important, I think throughout life and especially for topics that really could affect society communities as a whole.
2: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: So, you know, in your book you talk about the new Jim Crow and Michelle Alexander and reading that book, which is a favorite of ours here at the podcast as well. Besides your book and besides Michelle Alexander's book, what other for, you know, our listeners who want to, to read more and start really educating themselves besides finding the groups that can, you know, support them and help them learn and get involved with what are some other resources out there that you would recommend?
2: Yeah, I actually had breakfast with Michelle this morning. Today's her birthday. We did an event together for Politics and Prose a couple of days ago. And I was like so excited because I knew I was going to see her in a couple of days. And I was like, oh, my God. So happy birthday, Michelle. I know I told you a thousand times and now I'm saying it on this podcast. So thank you. Oh, man. So Miriam Kaba, I mean, just a storied organizer, thinker, writer. She also had a book that come out early this year called um, We Do This Till We Free Us. I highly, highly, highly encourage people to read that. Alice, it's just about policing or about anything? Anything. Oh, so hard. Okay. So there's this other book called Policing, a field guide that I kind of recommend to people because you hear terms like searches, warrants, and you think that you know them again, probably because you watch Law and Order like my mom does, much to my annoyance. So you think you know what these terms mean, but the authors of that book really like give a detailed, like analysis around what it actually means when someone like raids your house and where that history comes from. So I love, love, love that book. Oh my gosh. So many books now. Freedom Dreams is my favorite book to recommend to anyone everywhere. I consider it one of my personal Bibles. Robin D.G. Kelly, he asks a question in the like introduction. And he's like, you know, I work with activists. I know activists all over the country. They talk about the things that they want to dismantle. And I'm always curious about what they want to build. And then he gives this history. He talks about socialism a lot in the book. He gives this history of, you know, different organizations trying to build, you know, different things in our society in towards to approve it, literally from the campus to the streets. And so I try to read Freedom Dreams every year, if not every other year, because it's just such an incredible text. Elizabeth Hinton just wrote a book that also came out this year called America on Fire. And what she does is show how different communities, Black communities all across the country have essentially have been fighting for police reform and then the other levels of resistance that they've engaged in in order to stop policing. So she tells the story about this group of Black kids where police are taunting them day after day, day after day, day after day. And the police like one day just like grabs one of them off the street and arrests them. And then they, they're this kid, his brothers and sisters like run and like rescue like the kid from like the covenant, like get him away. It's like all these interesting stories of uh, that's just typically and like honestly untold, like the way the different ways that people resist police violence. Now I'm just like, oh my gosh, so much I wanna say. The end of policing by Alex Vitali is a good introduction into all of the ways that police reform just don't work. Like he takes each chapter, it's just like, This is what school policing is about. This is what homelessness policing is about. This is why more training doesn't work. This is why body cameras doesn't work. So it's a really good introduction to getting a sense of what policing is. Our Enemies in Blue by Kristen Williams does the same thing. Oh man, now Beth E. Richie's book, I think it's called Arrested Justice. It's a book about sexual violence and especially sexual violence from police and prisons towards Black women, class-exploited women. So that's also a very important book. You got to read Angela Davis, Our Prisons Obsolete in Abolition Democracy. I mean, there's just so much good out there.
0: <laughs> Selfishly, I totally asked this for myself too. I was like, <laughs> want all the books. So.
2: Oh, this is what last thing I'll say. Aya Gruber's book, I think it's called The Feminist War on Crime. I think everyone should read that book, but especially white women, especially white women. Aya, she just does such a phenomenal job of explaining here are the ways that police and imprisonment has been used historically to exploit, imprison and incarcerate like white women. And then what happens is that like, police or then used to say, well, we're going to like defend white women's chastity from like all of these black men and really put white women who are in relationships with white men and with black men in all of these positions to essentially lie or otherwise go to jail and go to prison. And then, how the continual reliance on law enforcement was seen as like this feminist thing when it actually it's not feminist or it's carceral feminist. So, I think it's a groundbreaking book that needs to get much more attention because she has steps of what people can do to stop their reliance on law enforcement, especially thinking about something like the violence against women as this feminist. She says, no, 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 that stuff's not feminist. It's actually really bad and really harmful for white women. If you look at the numbers, For incarceration, it's increasing for white women. It's like prisons are becoming less like black or less diverse. Not just because more people are getting out, but because more white people, especially white women, are getting arrested. The arrest rate for a white woman has jumped in the percentage, like in the hundreds, right? And so it's like, yeah, there needs to be a movement against incarceration and police if you care about white women, if you care about just saving yourself. And so I would highly, highly, highly encourage people to read that book.
1: That's amazing. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women podcast and Twitter at DWW podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.